behind these things is deep spiritual significance. So before we discuss these realities, let's read this whole chapter with the sermon and the sentence in mind. The promise of God preserves. So the people of God persevere. The promise of God preserves. So the people of God persevere. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we look upon this world and we often see it through a haze. And yet, Father, we come to you to your scripture today that we may see this world as you see it, that we may live as you would have it, that we set our hearts and our goals and our ambitions on godly things, but we can do none of these things without your Spirit. Father, may your Spirit dwell mightily with us to give us the strength to speak and to hear and apply these realities to our heart. Father, I ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start Exodus 1. We're going to start in the very beginning. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, with each of his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And behold, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from this land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramis. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, 
because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. Wendell Berry writes a book called Jaber Crow. Now, Mr. Crow was the barber of the Port Williams community. He lived during the early years between the World War I and World War II. He was a solitary man, quiet, patient, taking long walks through the rivers and ravines of the Port Williams community. Now, one day, Mr. Crow bought a car. Rarely did he drive that car more than 40 miles an hour. He obviously didn't live on the OPG 500. He found himself changed by this car. Every time a farmer was taking his pack mules down the road, he was aggravated. Every time debris made him slow down, he grew agitated. Every time he could not go, he blew his lid. Here is a quiet, solitary, patient man changed to impatience and aggravation because innovation warped his worldview. Now transfer that to today. We find ourselves under the same principles. There are people that go on Facebook and form fake identities. Saying things on Facebook they would never say to your face. And creating a lifestyle completely detached from reality. And even ourselves. We deal with irritation and aggravation in ways our forefathers did not. You want to go somewhere ungodly? Go to Chick-fil-A at 12 o'clock. You'll hear people honking horns, saying some dirty language, because they can't wait. Innovation has changed our life. We quickly go into despair when our health declines because we have become so dependent upon medical technology. Innovation has changed how we view the world. And just look around at our community. Our children and our grandchildren, for the most part, are moving out. They're going to college, getting married, and moving somewhere completely different due to marriage and chasing jobs. Our our younger generations have no sense of place. That affects us as well. What happens is that we have lost our sense of place. We have lost our sense of place in God's story. We have developed a wrong view of the world. If we want to see the world rightly, we must look through the lens of Scripture. I want us for the next 15 weeks to jump out of time and into history. I want us to look and see what God has done. The book of Exodus is a great story. It shows us God's redemption. 
It shows us conversion. It shows us how we're sanctified. It shows us how we deal with everything from sin to aggravating neighbors to frustration. It shows us spiritual realities. I want us to see the world as God sees it and live in it as God would have us to live. And the first thing I want us to see is that the promise of God preserves us. And so the people of God persevere. The promise preserves. The people persevere. These things go together. So let's take the sermon in two halves. First, the promise of God perseveres. Before we dive too deeply, let me say a word about covenant. Covenant's a very important term. What is a covenant? A covenant is nothing but a promise with certain obligations. This is a thing that we need to keep in the back of our mind. When you open your Bible, the first word you do not see is in the beginning. The first word you see is the Old Testament. Testament is a Latin word for covenant. They're trying to tell us how to read our Bibles. We are all in, most of us in here are in covenant. Are you married? That is a type of covenant. It's a legal document. Richard Rollick once said that God says nothing to us without covenant. This Bible that we hold, that we read every day, it is a legal document where God binds himself to us with many great and precious promises. It has a historical prologue, a history, showing us how God has dealt with his people in the past. And what we see as we look throughout the past of Scripture is we see a God who has preserved his people by means of promise. By means of promise. We see in the very beginning, don't we? The promise of God preserved Adam. The promise of God preserved Adam. When Adam broke the covenant of works and was banished from paradise, God made a new covenant. We call it the covenant of grace. The promise of grace. We see it in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will bruise his head and the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel. That is a promise that God will take care of Satan and sin. But if God's going to do that, then he has to preserve the seed of the woman. Does God do that? Does God preserve his seed? Well, we see that Cain kills Abel, but God preserves his promise through Seth. We see a generation of unrighteous people who the thoughts of their hearts were wickedness continually. And yet God preserves the seed of the woman through Noah. God floods the entire world so that he can keep that one promise. God binds himself to us with many great and precious promises. But not only did the promise of God preserve Adam, but God, the promise of God preserved Abraham. It preserved Abraham. You may remember, God calls Abraham and he says, Hey, I'm going to give you a land that you can't even imagine, and I'm going to give you as many sons as there are stars of heaven. Abraham's a little old. And in Genesis 15, 
Abraham looks at God and says, Look, God, I'm no spring chicken. How is this going to work? How are you going to keep your promise? What does God do? God says, I want you to get some animals. I want you to cut them in half. This is what we call cutting a covenant. And what would happen is two parties would make an agreement, and the lesser party would walk through the pieces. And what that signified is, if I do not keep my word, if I break my promise, let me be cut in half, just like these animals. What if we brought that back to weddings? That would really be scary, wouldn't it? But that's a big deal. It's a life or death obligation. But what happens? God causes Abraham to go to sleep. And God himself walks through the pieces. God says, if I do not keep this promise, if I do not preserve you, let me be cut in half. That's a big deal. That's a life or death promise. God bases his promise on his imperishable life. And we ask, did God keep his promise? Well, that brings us right here to Exodus chapter 1. The promise of God preserved Israel. What do we see in the first section? The people of Israel were fruitful in the land and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the people of God grew. Here we see that God's promise preserved the people in a foreign land, in adverse conditions, in political turmoil. God's promise preserves. Now there's something special that goes with that word preserve, isn't it? You know, Jessica got into canning this year. You preserve things. Why do you preserve things? If I just got a bunch of tomatoes and threw them in a jar and put them in the cabinet, they would rot because there's a problem of decay. So we must preserve them. We must put them under pressure. We must put them through water. We must can them. We must take care of them. The fact that we have to preserve implies there's a problem. And the fact that God gives us a promise to preserve us entails that there will always be a problem. Philippians 1. It has been granted to us for the sake of Christ that we would have faith in Him. And it's also been granted to us that we would suffer. The two things go together. Behind every promise, behind every promise that preserves us, there is a problem. God promises us eternal happiness. But that does not exclude temporary suffering. We see this again in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and between his offspring and your offspring. Enmity implies trouble. Enmity implies problems. See, that's part of the reason when all of us live out in the, in the boonies where our neighbors are a mile away. If you live in the city and you don't like your neighbor, guess what? There's going to be problems. There's going to be trouble. 
If that's the case with two people living next door, how much more so is it between two cosmic enemies? Between God and Satan. Satan is a usurper of God's covenant. The enemy of God's people. He's constantly provoking problems. We see it, don't we? In all the cases we just mentioned, Cain killed Abel. A generation mocked and ridiculed Noah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were beset by all sorts of destructive forces. John tells us in Revelation 12 that in all these events, the great red dragon, the serpent, is seeking to devour the woman from whom the Redeemer comes. The entire Old Testament is nothing but skirmish after skirmish of the Satan trying to kill the seed of the woman. And today, he seeks to slaughter us, his offspring. The problem of Exodus 1 is not that the people of Israel had really good genes. It wasn't that they had really good babies. The problem is a good God and a jealous serpent. As the people of God grew, so did the fear and loathing of the serpent. Each crack of the taskmaster's whip cracked with fear and loathing. Each city they built, just like the city of Babel, was founded on fear and loathing. Every ankle of a Hebrew child gripped between thumb and forefinger was hurled into the river by fear and loathing. Now you may say to yourself, Zach, I thought we were talking about Israel and Egypt between God and Pharaoh. Where's all this Satan business coming from? Well, we read in the book of Job, the Chaldeans attacked Job's, Job's property at the prompting of Satan. We see in the book of Ephesians that the children of wrath are under the dominion of the devil. That they are working according to the power of the prince of the power of the air who reigns in them. From the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, there has been a cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And let me tell you something. God did not give us these promises to save us from the common cold and car trouble. God gave us these promises to preserve us, to deliver us from sin and the grips of Satan himself. How are we to stand in the face of this sort of onslaught? It's only by the promise of God. Years ago, I heard a story about this castle that was besieged by an enemy army. And when they would see, besiege a castle, it'd go on for weeks. Have you ever been besieged by Satan? Keeping you up at night? Sending unfortunate circumstances? Deterring you and aggravating you left and right? It is like being besieged. This commander looked at this city and he said, they're out of food. They're probably resorting to cannibalism at this point. So he asked for their surrender. 
Silence filled the land. And all of a sudden there was a big flop against the side of the castle wall. The castle guards threw a stringer of fish over the side of the wall. They had a source of supply the enemy knew not of. We too have a source of supply the enemy knows not of. Romans 8 says that because Christ Jesus died for us, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then look at what Paul names. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. These are the very things Satan uses to separate us from God. This is his tool chest. But we have a supply. We have an endless reserve. We have God's promise. And God's promise preserves us. Do you have God's pro- Do you have faith in God's promise? When trouble and affliction strike, do you first look within and see what you have in your tool chest? Or do you look to God and to his promise, to his endless provision. That ties naturally to the second half of the sermon, doesn't it? Because God's promise preserves us, what does that mean for us? Does that mean we can be lazy? That God will just take care of everything for us? Not at all. If God's promise preserves us, the people of God persevere. As God's promises presume problems, perseverance presumes effort. The promise does not minimize the effort, but it increases the effort. When I was over operations at the Lowe's and Laurel, I had to make sure all the pallets in the back of the building were stacked. Now you may learn from others, I'm a little OCD on things like this. If you're going to do it, do it right. I want them straight. So I asked an employee to go stack the pallets. And you could hear the exasperation come between his clenched teeth. He wanted no part of it. And so I said, well, look, you get started, and I'll grab the forklift and come and help. And instantly he felt better, and he went to work. Let me tell you something. He worked twice as hard with me there. But he persevered because he knew he had a promise of help. He didn't mind doing the work because he knew he would be provided for. Aren't we in the same situation? Look at Shipper and Pua. These are abandoned, and these women have been abandoned and afflicted in Egypt for hundreds of years. And more than that, they're barren. This is a sign of God's curse of God's displeasure. And sometimes that does strange things to people. Makes them bitter. Makes them full of hatred. And now Pharaoh, who claims to be a son of God, stands over them and gives them a command to murder. Life and death hang in the balance. What would you do? It's easy for us to say, well, I, I wouldn't listen. So let's put it in a historical, let's put it in perspective. 
I know of a man who worked for a TV installation company. And he was tasked with installing TVs at a hotel that would be distributing free pornography. And out of his Christian convictions, he could not install those TVs. His job, his financial security was on the line. What would you do? What about the man whose friends encourage him to go hunting on someone else's property? They, they ask him to trespass and to steal. And if he does not, he knows he will be ridiculed by his closest peers. How many of us jump the fence anyway? How many times are we encouraged to lie and cheat on our taxes? Because we will face a great financial burden. And we're faced with a decision. Might not be life or death. But it has huge implications for us. Frequently in our lives, we are met with these situations. And we're tasked with the question, what should you do? One of the first things in the face of evil, we must fear God. This fear of God isn't a, oh, don't get me. That's what I do when Jessica rears back. Oh, don't get me. It's a love. The same if you love your father and you don't want to disappoint him, not because you're scared of him, but because you love him. I'm reminded of George Orwell's 1984. In this book, he lives in a totalitarian society. They tell you what to wear, what to eat. They tell you your morning routine. In every room and every street corner are TVs that are watching you, recording your every moment. And you might say, how can I do anything rebellious in a society constantly watching me? Do you know where young Winston's rebellion started? It started in here. It started first by loving someone besides a political party. It started by loving. And it started by being loved. Love was the first result, his first volley, his first attack against tyranny. And isn't that what we see these women do? They orient us to God's story. They point the way forward. They did not love Pharaoh. They feared God. Shipra and Pua's first act of disobedience was not their midwifery. It was their love. It was their heart. As Paul says, this is faith working through love. And it's worth noting, we're not talking about politicians, preachers, or anybody with any sort of power. These women were powerless. But the first act they could do was to love God. If you want to stand up against Satan, if you want to stand up against sin, if you want to stand up against the evils of this world, it starts right there. The world does not know the meaning of love. The world only knows the meaning of fear. The fear that leads to backstabbing. The fear that leads to bribery. The fear that leads to cutting corners. The fear that leads to murder. They know this fear because they're scared of losing their power and their privilege. Innovation has made us succumb to these things. We become dependent upon our health care. 
scared of standing up for our conscience that we may lose our health care. We become dependent upon political parties, worried about what will happen in the next election cycle. We become dependent upon our modern comforts, scared that we will find no joy elsewhere. And yet behind all these things, behind every scalpel that the doctor picks up, is God who is our healer. Behind every authority in this world is the God who is enthroned in heaven. Behind every worldly comfort is a God who is joy himself and offers himself to us. It is in God that we have everything we need. Men can rant and rave. Storms can come and go. But we have a blood-sealed promise that will preserve us. And we can persevere. So I ask you, church, what do you fear this morning? Is it the fear of God that will allow you to stand against tyrants? Or is it the fear of man that will waffle with every leaf that rustles? What are we scared of? Are we persevering by a healthy fear of God? And this fear of God leads us to the next obvious point. We obey God. Ed Welch has a quote. Ed Welch has a quote that says, The fear of God simplifies life. When we fear God, our decision-making process becomes easier. If we're going to persevere in persecution and affliction, it begins by standing in faith. And this standing will often bring suffering. Today, the fear of God will run cross-current against this world. We ask how we can persevere. It is by obedience. Every act of obedience reminds the world that their time is up. When the world looks at us and says, just kill them babies, we say no. We stand with God, and we will be a father to the fatherless. When the world says, give your lust and your pleasure free reign, we say no. We are going to promote the marriages God has ordained. When the world says, just go twist their arms and take what's yours. We seek our provision in God's mighty arm. When the world says, work yourself in a stupor, we say, it is vain to rise early and go to bed late. For God gives to us Sleep. If we want to be disobedient in a fallen world, if we want to persevere, it begins by loving and being loved, fearing God and obeying Him. Let His love rule in our hearts and the rest will follow. The world may grab us between thumb and forefinger and hurl us to a watery grave, but it cannot quench the love of God reigning in our hearts. By His promise, we will persevere. So let me close just with a tidbit, something you may have overlooked. Pharaoh at this time is the most powerful man on the face of the planet. Can you tell me his name? You cannot. He is not named. He is not named in this story, and he is not named in the Lamb's Book of Life. He is not important. 
But you know who is named? Shepron Pua. Two of the most insignificant figures in society are named because they fear the Lord. God does not remember the prideful or the powerful, but He preserves the humble that call upon His name. We look out at today and we ask, how can I make it until tomorrow? I am weak. I am small. I have no power. Call upon God in the day of trouble. Fear Him and Him alone, and He will answer. He will remember our name. That is His promise to us, a promise to preserve. And by that, we will persevere. Now let us pray. Gracious Father, as we stand today, I pray that You would strengthen and uphold us by Your promise and strengthen us to say no to sin and no to unrighteousness and to be hunger to be hungry and thirsty for your righteousness in our life. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.